Well, good morning. Thank you, worship team, for the lovely worship this morning. I want to welcome everyone here to Gospel of Grace and hope you all had a wonderful Christmas. And I hope you have a wonderful New Year and uh, time with your family this week. Now, I want to mention for anyone that may be new here this morning, or perhaps you're listening online, normally we at Gospel of Grace Fellowship do preach verse by verse through the Bible. Um, I'm currently working through the book of Matthew. Bob has been doing a magnificent job teaching us through the book of 1 Corinthians. But every now and then we will do topical messages, and we like to do them a lot of times on Christmas. And so here is a rare topical message on Christmas. So today, what I want to do, first of all, I'll start my timer here. Today, I want to focus on having joy in our salvation despite our circumstances. And I say this because if you're like me, the last two years have been very trying, whether it's the pandemic or the government overreach because of the pandemic or our political situation. The last two years have been very trying for many people. And despite that, we've lost some of us in here, friends, family, co-workers. And so what I want to do is explain how myself, I know these circumstances have led to me wanting to be closer to the Lord and to cling to him and to find joy in my salvation. And so my prayer is that you would find joy in your salvation despite your circumstances as well. Dear ones, our messianic salvation is something that was given to us by the joy of our messianic salvation was given to us by the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.6, he says that we had received the word with much tribulation and the joy of the Holy Spirit. And so, brothers and sisters, today we're going to remind ourselves that this joy can never leave. If you've been saved by Jesus Christ, this is a joy that transcends any circumstances in your life. Now, today, I want to begin by looking at how the Old Testament had predicted that great joy would accompany messianic salvation. And I want to show you in the Old Testament prophets where this is seen. One of the prophets that really clearly teaches this is the prophet Isaiah. Now, remember, Isaiah was written some 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus Christ. And I want you to remember also that there were three different books, as it were, within Isaiah. Isaiah wrote them all. But think of the first 37 chapters of Isaiah as depicting the Messianic king. Then when you go from chapters 38 through 55, it portrays the great Messianic servant, the one who would save us from our sins. Then from Isaiah 56 all the way to the end of the book, chapter 66, it focuses on the Messianic conqueror, the one who's going to bring us this glorious kingdom. But in the middle of that section where it talks about the servant, it talks a lot about how we can have joy in our salvation and how messianic salvation would bring joy not just to the Jews but to the Gentiles. In fact, we see that great promise that there's going to be a successful messianic mission in Isaiah chapter 49, verses 12 through 13. Notice where it says, Behold, these, and the these here are the Gentiles. These will come from afar, and lo, These will come from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Sinim. Let's stop there for a moment. Where in the world is Sinim? Well, that was a city in Egypt. And I think Egypt is mentioned here because it was one of the prototypical enemies of God. But even they, one day when they came to faith in the Messiah, they would rejoice. And so you see this rejoicing of the Gentiles who would one day come to faith 
in the messianic salvation that was first given to Israel. Notice verse 13, it says, Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Now, I'm going to pull up my pointer, and I want you to see, first of all, in verse 12, where it says, These will come from afar. Again, this is a reference to the Gentiles. And remember, very early on, even in the law of Moses itself, God predicted that the Messiah who came from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David would be not just good news for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. A Genesis 12, 3, remember in Abraham, you will be a blessing to all the nations. Now, notice here, what is going to happen when Gentile salvation comes? Well, there's going to be a shout for joy. In fact, so great, notice the personification of the heavens. The heavens are going to rejoice, so will the earth, and so will the mountains. Why is there going to be such rejoicing? Well, notice it says four. And if you're a note-taker, underline that. This gives you the explanation why. For the Lord has comforted his people, and he's had compassion on his afflicted. Here, the term compassion is really synonymous with the grace and mercy of the Lord. And so what's being promised is that people who were formerly objects of God's wrath would one day receive, by faith, messianic salvation and have great joy. Now, as we see here in Isaiah 49, that great joy would accompany messianic salvation for the Gentiles, we have to realize the Jews would not be left out. When we get to Isaiah chapter 51, we see that they also would rejoice in messianic salvation. Now, they come to faith later in Mass. That's still in our future, by the way. But notice, this is a passage really depicting what happens in the Millennial Kingdom. Isaiah 51.3, it says, Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. Stop there for just a moment. What is Zion? Well, Zion is technically a reference to that Mount Moriah where you have the Temple Mount. It's in Jerusalem. But as such, it really forms like a metonymy that stands for all of Israel. Uh, Someone might say, hey, what is Washington, D.C. saying? If you're living in Europe, for example, Washington, D.C. would be a stand-in for all of the United States. In the same way, Zion represents all of Israel. And so the he here is God. What's he going to do for Israel? It says he will comfort all her waste places, and her wilderness he will make like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving in sound of melody. Brothers and sisters, what's being promised here is no longer will Israel be a reproach in the nostrils of God. No longer will they be ridiculed and mocked by the nations because they're being judged by God. But what's being stated here is that one day when the Messiah comes, he's going to restore Israel to being like the very Garden of Eden. That's what he's going to do. In fact, notice in the underline, He says they will be like the garden of the Lord. The term garden there in the Greek Septuagint, that's the very same term that you and I use for paradise. It's the very same term that Jesus used in Luke 23, 43, where he said to the criminal, remember on the cross? Today, he says, truly, I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. Now, right now, where is the paradise of God? Well, right now, the paradise of God is in the New Jerusalem. 
So when a believer dies, and it's only for believers, they go to the paradise of God. But you know, at one time in history, the paradise of God was on earth. It was in the garden. In fact, the term garden is translated from the term paradise in the Septuagint. And so there was a paradise of God. Why? Because God walked among men. But because of sin, mankind, Adam and Eve, are expelled from the garden. They're expelled from paradise. And so one of the great joys of messianic salvation is that for those who believe, God brings paradise restored. That's what's being promised. That's what's going to be given to us. Brothers and sisters, what happens when there's paradise? Well, we're going to have forgiveness of sins, of course. We're going to have everlasting life. We're going to have resurrection life with our Messiah and a restored earth. Now, you might be saying to, you, to me up here speaking to you, Hey, Eric, of course I would have joy then. If I had paradise, I would have joy. But until that, I'm going to be happy being a curmudgeon. <laughs> I've done that myself, so I'm speaking out of experience. Well, let me say this to you. You and I, because we have the certainty of God's promises, we can have that joy now. Because God's promises never fail, the certainty of having the paradise restored should cause us to have joy even now. Yes, brothers and sisters, the Old Testament predicted that great joy would accompany messianic salvation and that this joy of salvation would be so deeply deposited within us by the Holy Spirit that no circumstances of life can ever dislodge it. Now, what I want to do is I want to turn to the very first Christmas that happened in Israel. Because there at this very first Christmas, when Jesus was born, there were very trying circumstances, much like the circumstances that you and I are experiencing today politically. In fact, let me give you three reasons why I think it was even worse in Israel than it is for us today. Number one, One of the reasons why it was so exceedingly difficult that first Christmas in Israel is Israel was under foreign domination. They were being dominated by the Roman pagans. The Romans had power over the known world. In fact, that's prophesied in Isaiah 7, 15 through 25, that when Messiah would be born, 700 years after Isaiah wrote, he'd be born under foreign domination. It was prophesied, but yet it was bleak. Second reason why it was so bleak at that first Christmas is Israel had to pay copious amount of taxes to these pagan Romans. They had to support the military of the pagan Romans. And what's worse, some of their tax dollars even went to support the religious apparatus of these pagan Romans, which would have been great sacrilege, of course, to the average Israelite. Third reason why it was so bleak that first Christmas, and that's because Israel had many of its citizens capriciously murdered by the leaders that the Roman government had propped up as puppets. Think about Herod the Great. He murdered even his own sons. He murdered little baby boys in Bethlehem. And by the way, it wasn't just Herod the Great. It was Herod Agrippa. It was Herod Philip. Later on, Jesus talks about how Pontius Pilate The Roman procurator mixed the blood of the Jews that he murdered with their own sacrifices as they came to celebrate Passover. These were sick puppies living in Rome. And yet, 
in spite of this bleak picture, God decided to bring messianic salvation and with it great joy. And so that's what I want to pick it up here in Luke chapter 2. You have a scene here where these shepherds are out tending to their flock in the nearby hills of Bethlehem. And all of a sudden we have this intrusion by God through the angelic realm. It says, Luke 2, 9 through 11, And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened, that is the shepherds. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, the first thing I want you to see here in verse 9 is the intrusion by this angel. An angel of the Lord comes unsolicited, unpredicted. These men are just minding their own business, and the Lord intervened. In fact, it wasn't just the angel. Notice it said that the glory of the Lord had shone around them. Now, the glory, oftentimes when we see that term, doxa in our New Testament, it refers to the weightiness or the honor that is due God. So if, think, for example, if you were a soldier living in the Third Army in World War II, if General Patton came in, you would stand at attention, and there was a gravitas, a weightiness to him. But the greatest weightiness that should be attributed to anyone is to the Holy One of Israel. That's the kind of honor or glory that is due him. But here... The term glory doesn't have to do with the honor that he deserves. But it has to do the splendor that is accompanying this intervention of God. Think about what these men saw. In fact, so awe-inspiring was it, notice they were terrified. And so that's why the angel had to intervene with words. Notice the angel's pronouncement in verse 10. It said, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you Good news of great joy. The term good news there, that is the term that we have for our gospel. The verb here is used, uangilitso. Now, uangilitso, the, the noun is uangelion. It's where we get our term evangelical. It's the term gospel. Gospel means good news. Now, I'm going to come back to explain what the good news is and how the Romans distorted it. But notice what did the good news lead to that was going to be preached here. It's going to lead to great joy. And then we are given an explanation in verse 11. Why should there be great joy? Notice the four. It's not just there for any old reason. It's an explanatory for. It's actually a hoti. You could render this because. That's how I would render it if I had the Eric Dalma version. Because today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You see, who's going to be born in the city of David, Bethlehem, isn't just a man. It's the Savior of Israel. It's the Savior of the world. That means the one who's being born, the one who is becoming flesh, is God. Now you might say, well, where does it say God? Well, notice, he's the Savior. Does it not say in Isaiah 43, 11, where the Lord says, I, even I am Yahweh, and there is no Savior besides me. That's exactly what it says. 
So if there's only one Savior of Jew and Gentile, and he was born in a manger, you can bet that this is God. This is the God-man coming for his people. This is the very intrusion of God. Now, I want you to think about what this means, this intrusion by God. The sending of the Messiah was God's intrusion into the world in which he would foist joy upon a bleak situation. Where there was only wrath, he extended mercy. Where there was only darkness, he extended hope. Where there was only sin, he gave forgiveness and righteousness. Now, I want you to think about our culture today. As you and I are living here today, the Marxists have a pretty good foothold politically in our nation. And the average view of the average American has left trusting in God to trusting in government. The average view of the average American, I think now, is government uber alles. Government above all. By the way, that's what Hegel taught, the instructor of Karl Marx. That salvation doesn't come from God. It comes ultimately from government. Do you know that that's the same? It was the same way at that first Christmas in the Roman culture. You see, in the Roman culture, they had distorted this term good news that you see in the underline on the screen. They used the term euangelion in the Roman world for the birth of the emperor. That was their good news. Their gospel was the birth of the emperor, especially since Caesar Augustus, the one who was reigning when Jesus was born, was the emperor of Rome who was known to spread what's called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And so do you see then, they had their own gospel. And it's in light of that, that they have a distorted sense that the government brings peace, all the while God intrudes with his son, the son who truly brings peace. And so the choice that day was who really is the reason for the good news? Who really is the ruler who brings peace? And I would suggest to you today, we have the same challenge before us personally and corporately within our nation. Now, the angel continued in verses 12 through 14. He went on, he said, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Brothers and sisters, notice in verse 12, the real reason for the good news isn't the birth of the emperor, but of God's son. That's the real reason. In fact, notice in verse 13, in the time period that the first Christmas happened, when the Romans celebrated their gospel, the good news of the birth of the emperor, they would conscript human choruses to sing praises to that emperor on his birthday. But isn't it a little ironic that here, the king of kings and the lord of lords is being born, but because there was no human chorus, God uses an angelic chorus to sing praises. Notice in blue, the heavenly host was praising God. God used a heavenly chorus to sing praises to his son because there was no human chorus available. Just as the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 1.6, where he says, let all of the angels worship him. A citation from Psalm 97.7. Yes, there's an angelic choir who are singing praises 
about the true leader of the world. Now, don't misunderstand me. Don't think that I'm claiming here that God simply took something, namely the gospel from the Roman culture, and poured new meaning into it. No. What I'm claiming is that in the Roman culture, in their demonic deception, they had distorted something that God had planned from the very beginning. That God would send forth his son, and that would be the good news. In fact, think back to the very first gospel presentation, the very first promise in all of our Bible, Genesis 3.15. Does it not say that a man was going to come and crush the serpent's head? Certainly it did. A man. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's a first-person masculine singular pronoun. Or actually, third-person masculine singular pronoun. But who's counting, right? It's going to be a he. And this man is going to come and crush the serpent. And so, therefore, the rest of Genesis are details. We find he's going to come from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob. Genesis 49.10, he's going to come from Judah. 2 Samuel 7, he's going to come from David. And so all along from the beginning, the good news is about God sending his son. And so here these pagans distorted it. They distorted it. They had completely upside down the good news and the intervention and intrusion by God. Now, I want you to notice here in verse 14, what were these angels saying? Notice they said, glory to God. Here they're giving honor to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now, I want you to notice here in this underlying section where it says, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Here the King James Version has it wrong. And I say that because I know there are people out there that have a King James only view. You should not. It is a heretical view. The King James Version only is a very bad view. Because with the King James Version, you know how it renders this section? It doesn't render the Greek properly. It says, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And the implication is that God has favor upon all men. That is not what the text says. The text says there's peace among men with whom he is pleased. God is not pleased with all people, but only some. Only those who will come to faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the ones with whom he is pleased. Now, how do we know that God isn't pleased with every single person? We know from Jesus' own words in Matthew seven thirteen through 14. Doesn't Jesus himself say that wide is the path that leads to destruction and many enter in through it? But narrow is the path that leads to salvation and few find it. And by the way, he was that narrow path. So yes, Jesus wasn't pleased and is not pleased with all men. Jesus himself says in John ten twenty six. To the Jews who didn't believe in him, he said, you don't believe in me because you're not of my sheep. In the very next verse, he says, my sheep hear my voice. I give them everlasting life and they shall never perish. Brothers and sisters, the greatest joy ever deposited on Christmas is only experienced by those who believe. God isn't pleased just because you're born a human. He's only pleased if you're born again. You're born once into this life, you'll die twice. But if you're born twice by trusting in Jesus Christ, you only die once. The greatest news ever deposited to humanity was the sending forth of the Son and his person and his work. And so that's what we're celebrating. 
the great joy associated with messianic salvation. Now, I want you to see that at that first Christmas, there was a great contrast between what the Roman world believed and what the Bible taught. And I would suggest to you that same contrast in some sense exists today. Let's start with the first contrast with the Roman world and God's word. And that is the gospel itself. In the Roman world, the good news was the birth of the emperors I mentioned earlier. But what's really the good news? The good news is the birth of God's son. Think about how we saw the contrast continue. In the Roman world, they had human choruses that they had conscripted to sing praises to the emperor on his birthday. Boy, what a ho-hum affair that would be, huh? Singing praises, playing pin the tail on the donkey, all for Caesar Augustus, who's at the end of the day just a human ruler. But God supplied his own angelic chorus. And I think that that's a contrast we should think about. There was no one to sing praises to the king of kings, so God supplied his own. But to me, the most important contrast is this third one, that in the Roman world, their joy in this born leader, the emperor, whoever it was, whether it was Augustus or later on Domitian and all these other wicked Nero, there was no lasting joy. But for those who trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ, it leads to everlasting joy. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the pagans do not have joy. In this world, they do. In fact, Jesus himself said in Luke 16, verse 19, let me say that in a minute. Do you remember in Luke 16, there's a contrast? Speaking of contrast, there's a contrast between the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man's an unbeliever. Lazarus is a believer. And remember, the rich man, Jesus said of the rich man who was an unbeliever, Luke 16, 19, jot that verse down, that he was joyously living in splendor every day. Let me say that again. What was the rich unbeliever doing in this world? He was joyously living in splendor every day. Every day. What's the problem with that? I could handle living in joyous splendor every day. The problem with it is he died. And his joy turned to great sorrow as he ended up in Hades, a temporal place of torment, awaiting the lake of fire. But it was the unbeliever Lazarus, excuse me, the believer Lazarus, who trusted in the promises of God, trusted in the good news that God supplied in Christ, who had no joy in this world, yet he had everlasting joy to celebrate. Brothers and sisters, the problem with the joy of the pagans is that it's only temporary. And that's in contrast with the joy that we experience in messianic salvation. Notice Isaiah 51. Let's go back there, verse 11. This is what's going to happen for all of us who have trusted in Christ in the great millennial kingdom. It says, So the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion. That's where the headquarters of the kingdom will be. And everlasting joy will be on their heads. When it says on their heads, it means it will always be associated with them. That's us, brothers and sisters. Dear ones, in our culture, the unbelievers, yes, they have a joy, but it's fleeting. You and I have a joy that is eternal because we have everlasting life. 
Now, I want to come to three reasons why you and I have everlasting joy by belonging to Jesus Christ. I'm going to share these with you, and my hope in doing so is to inspire you to look and count your blessings that you have in Jesus Christ this Christmas. The first reason that we have great joy, notice on the screen, is because of forgiveness of sins. Not only do we rejoice that we have personally the forgiveness of sins, but we also rejoice that others have the forgiveness of sins as well. Now, can we say that about the unbelieving world? Do the unregenerate rejoice when someone comes to faith in Jesus and has forgiveness? No. Nope, they don't rejoice in that at all. There's no joy in seeing others have the forgiveness of sins. Number two, obedience to Christ causes great joy in our lives. You see, at conversion, ever since conversion, when you came to faith in Jesus, there were times in your life that you were obedient to Jesus Christ that you would not have been had you not been converted. And that creates great joy in you. Why? Not because you're saved by works, but because your obedience reflects that you really believe. Why? Because you act on what you believe. And because you believe, you belong. So here's the flow chart. You obey. Obey is evidence that you really believe. And if you believe, you belong. And therefore, you know you belong if you're obedient to Christ. And it creates great joy. Now, can we say that the unregenerate are obedient? No. They never are. They're never considered obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three. Another reason for everlasting joy for us is we have resurrection life in the kingdom. Just as Jesus Christ overcame the grave, the promise is one day you and I will overcome the grave as well. He was the first fruits of the resurrection, guaranteeing the rest of the harvest would come. Now, I want to focus here on Luke 15 for just a moment. I want to focus on this forgiveness of sins and how it creates joy. But before I put up Luke 15, 7... I want to set the context so you understand the passage. Do you remember Jesus was dining with sinners and tax gatherers? And the Pharisees and scribes became very angry with him. They accused him of being a sinner because he ate and received sinners and tax gatherers. And so Jesus told them a story to explain the significance of seeking the lost. And remember he told that story about how what if a man had a hundred sheep and one of them was lost, he would certainly leave the 99 and go looking for the one that was lost. And he says, on finding that one that was lost, who among you, after you carry it home on your back, would not gather your neighbors and have a huge celebration, celebrating the fact that this sheep that was lost was now found. And, of course, Jesus' point is there's an implied lesser to greater. If the lesser sheep was worthy of rejoicing over, how much greater rejoicing over the lost human? That's implied. So then he said in the very next verse, Luke 15, 7, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, there's some biting irony, I think, in what Jesus says here. And that's because, notice he says that there's more rejoicing in the one that repents than over the 99 righteous who need no repentance. Let me ask you the question. I know you know the answer. Are there really 99 righteous people? Is there one righteous person? No, and Jesus knows it. 
Because the apostle who wrote his very word said in Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, again, the apostle said, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the sad irony is the Pharisees and the Sadducees were self-deceived into thinking they were righteous. They were ones who needed repentance too. But the great point here is look at the joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but over the last couple of years, to my own shame, there's times where I wasn't looking for the joy of seeing others coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And I just want to ask you, are there times in your life, truth be told, ask yourself, are you just focused on this joy of seeing others saved? Or are there times that you're just going through the motions of life, trying to survive in this world that we have? I want you to think about something a friend told me. He's a flight instructor down in Wichita. And he told me one day, he said, Eric, it's like all of us as believers are on a rescue mission. We're behind enemy lines. And the whole goal, the whole mission is to save as many by preaching the gospel and seeing people have the forgiveness of sins and therefore have everlasting life. He's exactly right. And if you have that attitude, do you realize that you will never wake up to the dull drums of an alarm clock again? But you will wake up to the exceedingly great calling of preaching the gospel so that others may have the forgiveness of sins. And in seeing that, if you're a real believer, brothers and sisters, you're going to have great joy. Now, I want to share the gospel here this morning so that if there's anyone here that does not believe or anyone listening to me today on the internet that does not believe, today may be your day that you can have the forgiveness of sins and the joy associated with messianic salvation. So I'm going to share the good news of the gospel, but I like to say that the good news of the gospel only makes sense if we know the bad news. You see, the Bible does teach us bad news as well. The bad news of the Bible is very bad indeed. It starts with us as humans. In Romans 3.23, as I mentioned earlier, it states that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single person has rebelled against God. And this rebellion and thought word indeed really is much like cosmic treason. Because the wages of our sin is death, not just separation of body and soul, although that's bad enough. Remember, death is an annihilation in the Bible. It's separation. The first death is separation of body and soul. But there's a second death that's even far worse, and that's separation from God in the lake of fire. Jesus himself taught that in Matthew 10, 28. So if someone doesn't believe in hell, they're differing with Jesus, the Holy One of Israel, the one who did miraculous things, the one who walked on water. So I can't think of any worse news. All of us have sinned, rebelled against God, It incurred his wrath, one day to be separated in the lake of fire forever. That does not sound good, and it's not. But that's precisely where the good news shines. The good news of the gospel, the true gospel, was that God's plan was to send forth his son, the son who existed as God and with God from all eternity. At a point in history, through the virgin birth, humbled himself, and he became a man. Jesus Christ was truly God, and truly man in one person. He was truly God because only God saves. Remember, there's no Savior besides me, the Lord says. 
But he also had to be truly man. Why? Because he had to represent us so that he could live the perfect life that none of us could, so that by faith in him, his righteousness could be clothed to our account so that we would have some righteousness to offer God, the perfect righteousness of Christ. But Jesus didn't come just to live the perfect life. He came to die a substitutionary death. Jesus, the just, on behalf of us, the unjust, in order that we might be brought to God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus absorbed the full measure of God's wrath for those who would trust in him. And the proof of this is that after his death on the third day, he was bodily raised from the dead. His resurrection proves all of his claims. When Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by him, we can believe it. Why? He was raised from the dead. This Jesus ascended to the heavens where he's bodily seated at the right hand of God, fulfilling Psalm 110.1. From where he's coming again to bring a glorious kingdom and resurrection for his people, but wrath and judgment upon his enemies. What does Jesus command? By the way, it's not a suggestion, it's a command. Mark 1.15, the Lord of glory, Jesus commands every person to repent and to believe the gospel. Repentance, first of all, has to do with a turning, a change of mind and a turning from idolatry and unbelief and turning to God on his terms. What's God's terms? Faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Today, if you will trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you will have the forgiveness of sins. And you will have deposited in you, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, a great joy. A joy so deep that it can never be dislodged. Now, let's come to our second reason for everlasting joy for the believer, and that is obedience to Christ's commands. That creates great joy. Now, why does that? Again, because those who are unregenerate, as it says in Romans 8, 8, can do nothing that pleases God. When you obey the Lord, it's evidence that you really believe. And if you believe, you really belong. And so you see, before you were a believer, you never sought to obey the Lord. This is something that only the Holy Spirit does through you. And so it's evidence that you belong. In fact, notice what Jesus said about those who obey. John fifteen ten through 11, he says, If... You keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be made, excuse me, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Now, dear ones, I want you to first notice the conditional statement. If you keep my commandments, there's an implied, what's called apotesis or then, then you will abide in my love. Again, if you keep my commandments, again, Romans 8, 8 says that those who are in the flesh, the unbeliever, cannot please God. They can't do that. But if you have the Holy Spirit deposited the moment you believed, you can. And so if you obey, it's evidence that you belong. Why? Because you really believe. That's the idea. In fact, notice this term abide. If you keep his commandments, you're abiding. The term there, meno, means to remain. Uh, Bob Dway, when he was teaching first, John talked about this term, and I love how Bob put it. He said it means stay put. That we would stay put in the sun. 
And what is the result of that if we stay put? Notice that our joy would be made full. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing more joy-destroying, if that's a term, a phrase, than having disobedience in your life. I want you to think about King David. Wasn't King David known as a man after God's own heart? Yes. And yet, remember, he had sinned against the Lord when he took that woman Bathsheba, who wasn't his wife, to be his own. Remember, in fact, he sent Uriah, her husband, to the front. David, as king, was the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, so he takes Bathsheba's husband, sends him to the front so that he would be killed, so that he can have the man's wife. And Nathan, the prophet, confronted him, saying, You're the man, David. And David really did have sorrow for sin. In fact, I want you to jot this verse down. In Psalm 51, 12, when he was repenting, and in his contrition, he said this. Psalm 51, 12, he said, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Is it an interesting that David didn't say, Hey, restore to me my salvation? No, he couldn't lose that. Just as Peter didn't lose it when he denied Christ because he belonged. But he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Maybe, brothers and sisters, in the last couple of years, the stresses of life, you've developed some sinful habits. And truth be told, it's stealing the joy out of your life because, you see, the Holy Spirit brings conviction. But I want you to know that the Holy Spirit, while it brings conviction, it doesn't bring condemnation. And so perhaps there's sin in your life as a believer. Today is the day to turn from it. Today is the day to turn from it and be obedient once again by the power of the Spirit to the Lord Jesus Christ so that what? Your joy be made full. Today is the day. Now, let's come to our last reason why we as believers have everlasting joy. And that is because we have everlasting life and the joy of the kingdom and the resurrection to look forward to. And I say that because I know many of you in here have lost family members, friends, co-workers in the last couple of years. And so we do mourn. But remember, as we mourn, it says, as I'll show you in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we do not mourn as those who have no hope. And so it's this hope in the future promises, the resurrection, the kingdom that gives us great joy. Now, I want to talk about hope from the Bible and compare it to how we use hope in our own American vernacular. Because oftentimes when I've preached before and I use the term hope, I know as an American, it kind of rolls off my back. It doesn't sound so great. Oh, hope. The reason why is an American vernacular, hope has a sense of contingency. I hope the Vikings might win a Super Bowl someday. Fat chance of that happening, by the way. I hope I don't get audited. I hope my son or daughter does better in school. I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. It's always a sense of contingency. That's not the biblical hope. Because the biblical hope of the resurrection and the return of Christ is based on the promises of the Holy One of Israel. The God who cannot lie. And so it's a certain thing when we're talking about biblical hope. If I were a forecaster, I will make this bold prediction. There is a 100% chance of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a certain hope. And so I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. It's a passage I had mentioned this previous Wednesday in our 
Sunday school that we had moved to Wednesday temporarily. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. Let's focus on 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. And we'll keep reading from there. Please turn your Bibles again. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. Now, before I read, remember, what was the angst within the congregation at Thessalonica? Well, their concern was that their dead relatives would miss out on the glories of the second coming of Christ. Now, they knew that they would be part of a resurrection, but they thought, well, they're dead. Maybe they're not going to see the glories of Jesus coming. What Paul is going to assure them is, no, they'll be part of it. That's the purpose here. Verse 13, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul said, But we do not want you, that's the believer, to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that's a euphemism for death, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Stop there. The unregenerate have no hope. They fool themselves into thinking that perhaps they'll cheat death, perhaps the death rate really isn't one per person. They'll fool themselves and they'll do all sorts of things in this life. They'll drink, they'll use uh, drugs to obscure the fact that, yes, death does come to every person. But they have no hope. Not so with you. You belong to Jesus. And he says in verse 14, he says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Again, asleep is a euphemism for death. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. So this is revealed to Paul that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself, verse 16, will descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. When we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, notice in verse 18, comfort one another with these words. Remember some probably years ago now, Bob DeWay and I were working together and he, we were talking about some dire circumstance and he looked at me and said, you know, there's really no problem that we have that the rapture won't cure. Brothers and sisters, if you have problems in your life, and I know you do because I do, the rapture will cure it. Maybe you're ill today and you're listening and you're hurting, the rapture will cure it. Maybe money is an issue, you've lost your job, the rapture will cure it. Maybe you're concerned about the evils of this world and all sorts of problems that this world has, the threats of war and etc., etc., the rapture will cure it. Brothers and sisters, Christ is coming to make all of your hopes come true. Resurrected body, glorious kingdom, the paradise of God. In fact, so much so, Jesus said this to his believers. He made an analogy of a master. He said in Matthew 25, 23, it says, His master said to him, this is to the servant, Well done, good and faithful slave, You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Brothers and sisters, as we live in this turbulent world, I want you to focus not on the fleeting pleasures here and now, not on the fleeting troubles here and now, but focus on this everlasting joy, the joy that belongs to you because you have fled by faith alone 
in Jesus Christ alone, the true ruler of the world. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you that you are coming again, that all of our problems will be resolved, and that our hope is well-founded because we trusted in you, that we will not be disappointed for those of us who have trusted in you, the chief cornerstone laid in Zion. We thank you, Heavenly Father, and we do pray, Lord, that you would refocus us this new year onto being those who have the gospel upon our lips and concern for the lost, that you would give us boldness and opportunity to proclaim your good news, the only true good news, and that others may be saved and have forgiveness of sins, that we would take this rescue mission seriously, that we would no longer wake up to the doldrums of the alarm clock, but to our great high calling, proclaiming your gospel. We pray, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have the honor of being able to celebrate the Lord's Supper today and to share that with one another. And what we do here at Gospel of Grace is we believe that any believer in Jesus is welcome to the table. And so if you're listening, again, as Tom Getch uh, said very well, that you are welcome to partake. If you have a cup and a little piece of bread or whatever you have to eat, feel free to partake with us. The ushers are going to dismiss you row by row. You will come up and you'll grab a cup and a wafer. You'll partake of it, and then there's a waste paper basket on each side just to throw the cup in. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the words of institution, and then we'll pray. 1 Corinthians 11:23, Paul said this about the Lord's Supper. He said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So stop there for just a moment. The bread was a symbol of Jesus' body, that on the cross his body would be broken as a substitute for the salvation of his people. Then he continued, he said in verse 25, he says, In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Humans, remember Jesus offered that final cup, I should say the third cup, the cup of redemption, that's in his blood. It symbolizes his shed blood for the remission of sin. And so what we do at the Lord's Supper is we're remembering what Christ did for us to save us from our sins. But notice Paul also said, as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until when? Until he comes. This is a foreshadowing of the great marriage supper of the Lamb. That one day, perhaps even tomorrow, next week, whenever it is, we're going to have the opportunity to drink anew with him in the Father's kingdom. And so, dear ones, that's what we're excited about, that one day this supper is going to be with the Lord himself, all because of what he did for us at his first coming on the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for sending your Son, that through his shed blood on the cross, we could have atonement, we could have forgiveness, that we would be made partakers of the new covenant, that we'd be given your spirit, we'd be able to live lives that are pleasing to you, that we'd be adopted into the family of God and have these eternal promises. We thank you, Heavenly Father. We're forever grateful. We give you all honor, praise, and thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.